Bienvenidos al podcast de Latino Founder Hour. Each week we invite you to spend an in-depth hour with us as we speak with a Latino startup founder from somewhere around the world. Aquí conocerás esas historias de éxito y fracasos, retos personales y lecciones aprendidas. And we have fun. We're live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Tune in at startupradionetwork.com. O en versión podcast después del show. Escucha. Listen. Aprende. Learn. Y emprende. Launch. Good morning, buenos días todos. ¿Cómo están? Bienvenidos otra vez a una hora más de Latino Founder Hour desde Portland, Oregon, en esta lluviosa mañana del 6 de abril 2018. Los saludamos desde Portland. Bueno, los saludo yo porque eh, mi compañera y co-host, Claudia, se encuentra en, un, en una reunión. Pero bueno, el día de hoy tenemos una otra, otra invitada de honor, este, pues bastante interesante su historia. ¿Y por qué no empezamos? No, ahora vamos a cambiar a inglés porque... Eh, 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 este, no, lo, lo estamos variando, ¿no? Lisa Morales, uh, Lisa, how you doing this, this morning? Welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the opportunity and the time, you know, give us the opportunity to um, to do this talk with you. And can can you uh, teach me how to say your last name, Morales? <laughs> yes, no problem. I, I don't want to butcher it. So <laughs> no. So my husband is Norwegian, so the Norwegian pronunciation is Hellebø. But if you say it like any American, it's just Hellebo. Hellebo. Okay, Lisa Morales Hellebo in the All show. All the Latinos are like, Lisa Morales, he llevo. <laughs> he <laughs> llevo. Yeah, it's like, how do I say it? Like, you know, he llevo or Hellebo or how do you say it again? Hellebo? Hellebo. Hellebo, okay. Excellent. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time, Lisa. And we just wanted to talk to you about, you know, who you are, you know, what's been your um, trajectory. Uh, tell us a little bit. I mean, thank you again, you know, for taking the time. You know, I, I don't know. I, I know you're in New York, uh, upstate New York. Uh, and welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Lisa. Sure. Um, I am a Puerto Rican from the Bronx. So officially makes me squarely a New Yorican. <laughs> totally, yes. <laughs> My dad was a principal in the South Bronx for 37 years. Uh, even after moving us up to Westchester when I was three, he would drive down to the city, uh, leaving at like 5 a.m. and getting home at like 7, 7.30 every day. Um, so they moved us out of the city when I was fairly young to give us, uh, you know, better opportunities, better choices and Um, you know, a different suburban lifestyle. And I'm extremely grateful for that because obviously it did come with a lot more opportunity and a different sort of environment. But one of the downsides was that, um, you know, nobody in Westchester spoke Spanish. <laughs> so, I see. So um, my parents didn't really encourage us to, to learn the language because we were already sticking out like sore thumbs. You know, we were the only brown family in Westchester in the 80s, I think. Oh, wow. And we certainly were um, the only family of color in the uh, private Catholic school that I went to. And um, you'd think Catholic kids would be, you know, so Christian. And no, I was spit on on the bus on a daily basis. Oh, my to gosh. give me a shower because my skin was so dirty and brown. And, uh, you know, they'd ask me if I was um, a spick or a nigger, and I would come home crying. Um, oh my so my parents obviously realized that with, with the better opportunities came a lot of different um, 
Results. Drawbacks, yeah, yeah, unbelievable. And, and this is again remind, re- reminder. This is in the eighties, not in, you know nineteen fifties or or forties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm it, not it that is, old. A, it is a, it's <laughs> a, we keep hearing these stories and like people are like, wow, really? Like, yes. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's not that far. Away. And um, and I'm sure right now, you know, if you go into certain pockets, areas, and everywhere in the country, you will still see that that experience, even in a blue oh. state like New York. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, our current administration occupying the White House <laughs> has certainly made it more apparent that this has all been underlying and nobody's really addressed it. Yeah. And it's been given a lot more um, social normalization through the recent rhetoric. But I certainly grew up with a ton of it. And on top of just being the different family that spoke a weird language and was brown and ate plantains and rice and beans and didn't have like little Debbie snacks for after school, <laughs> you know? Tostones um, instead of de- little Debbie's, yes. Yeah. So all the kids that would come over to play at our house would be like, why do you have weird food, you know? Yeah. So we also grew up two doors down from a super racist family. Um, and it, you know, it's just the luck of the draw. My parents wanted to move us to Westchester and happened to be from the age of three until I went away to school to college. Um, the family that lived two doors down from us, the, the father would beat their children if they said hello to us. They, um, would write spick in the snow, put severed bloody deer heads in our driveway and other animal parts. Um, pretty much a daily occurrence. Wow. For, <laughs> and again, for to, to, to the readers, this is again, 80s and not in Mississippi. This is in upstate New no. York. In the 80s. Yeah. Phenomenal. I mean, in New York, in affluent Westchester. Yes. yes. So, so that's why, you know, there's a, you know, racism, racism has no geographic boundaries or um, socioeconomic limitations, as we can see. No, no, not at all. Unbelievable. It's, it's interesting because I've learned throughout my journey that, um, you know, everyone says that your childhood shapes you, but I had no real understanding of just how much until I was 37 years old. <laughs> I've, um, I've always been super type A, overachiever, really driven. And at the age of 37, I was in Techstars Boston uh, building my very first tech company as the technical founder and raising capital and being away from my kids and husband for three and a half months, super stressful. I was pulled aside by the managing director one night and she said something to me about being like mediocre, middle of the pack amongst the CEOs and it gutted me. And so I went home at the age of 30, called my mom (laughs) and cried because I was just, you know, when you're at that exhausted stage, anything, yeah. somebody looks wrong and you burst into tears. Absolutely. Or at least I do. Yeah. And so I call my mom and she said the same words to me that she used to say to me when I'd come home from school crying. She said, Lisa, you deserve to have your voice heard no matter what room you walk into. Just hold your head high and prove your worth. And those words cracked something open inside of me that triggered all the memories from my childhood that I've been suppressing. And I couldn't stop crying for months. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, any, 
set me off. So, so, and so I finally yeah, it, went, it was, I mean, to, to you that, uh, wow, like, like you said, all those suppressed memories that you you might have. I, I wanted to ask you, did you just like when you went, went away to college, did you just for, forgot about him? Did, did anything? Because I, we saw that you, you went to Pittsburgh um, and to Carnegie Mellon, by the way, amazing. Uh, <laughs> And did, did did that continue? Because I mean, we know Pittsburgh is also you know a bastion of uh, you know blue collar. I mean, it's also sort of super liberal. So did did that experience just help you? Were you more at ease, or did that continue throughout you know, your college years? Oh yeah, it, it continued throughout my career and and mm. life, where people would say ridiculous things to me in my in my twenties. Oh, I wanted to go out with you because you're a hot Latina, and I hear they put out. Oh. You know, I like the way Latinas move, and I want to see how you move in the sack. You know, just <laughs> stupid, ridiculous yeah. types. Um, so, yeah, and even in uh, my first job out of school, I was harassed by um, an Asian woman who happened to be my direct report who was jealous of my appearance, which I can't do anything about. <laughs> and um, she would she would harass me and frankly tell, say things to other executives. This was at Herman Miller in Michigan. Oh, go ask Lisa, the new intern with the big boobs. I was like, what? <laughs> wow. Why would anyone? And, and this is and this an is a woman. Level? Yeah. Yeah, I'm all covered up and trying my hardest. <laughs> it was horrible. So I dealt with it throughout my career and layer on top of that. Being smart <laughs> and really driven and motivated, um, I realized in that moment that night at Techstars that those words, prove your worth, were the single driving force of my entire career and life. But, but, it's yeah, why I, I only it, applied to Carnegie Mellon. Wow. <laughs> it's why I uh, wanted to work at Herman Miller after I found out that there was uh, a contest every year of 4,500 students and they only pick two. <laughs> it's why I, um, you know, always chose the hardest path possible and would figure it out as I went. Um, and nothing was given to you. Nothing was yeah. just laid out in a, in a silver platter. It's like, oh, listen, just cruised through life and here, here she is. Yeah. Wow. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, th th those words that, you know, that really fueled your fire, it, it made you who you are. And, and, you know, one of the things, I, do, do those words resonate with you? Like, you, do you feel like you have to prove something to, you know, all these people or just to yourself? Or like, you know, th this is, I'm doing this just for the sake of me rather than just to, you know, show you how screw you. You know, you, you think I'm just, you know, this person, I'm like, I'm going to prove it. Before, it used to be um, proving my worth to others. And it literally took me up until I was 37 and at Techstars and even thereafter, I, I was realized after seeing a therapist that I was suffering from PTSD mm -hmm. from all the abuse from people in my childhood. Um, so afterwards, when I turned, oh, I think 40 or so, but really I'd say like two years ago, I'm 45 in the fall. So just in the past couple of years, it started off. I hope you don't mind. I have a potty mouth. Oh no, no, no! And by, by the way, this is this is uh, a, a podcast, so we are off the FCC rules. So fuck him. Okay. <laughs> so um, I I just realized I no longer had any fucks to give. There you <laughs> go. Yeah. <laughs> and that I I had proven my worth to others, and those who don't 
appreciate who you are and add value to your or share your energy, there are people that will try to deplete your energy and people that will feed your energy. And I realized in my 40s, I have no time or, or room for people that are just trying to deplete my energy and cut you down in any way. You know, there's, there's criticism, which can be constructive and helpful, but it can, it comes, you know, when it's coming from a bad place, yeah. you get that thing. Yeah. A bucket and dipper. So just cut those people out. <laughs> yeah. Just, just less, no drama. I, I mean, it's been my philosophy to like no drama, uh, just productivity. I mean, if you don't, you know, have any value added, just, just, you know, move out of the way because there's n- nothing. I- I'm also in my 40s. I'm on 43. Yeah, 43. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, but my, my folks to give like, they, they were gone long, long ago. I have less, yeah. but <laughs> so, so we're in the same boat. But I, I mean, I'm glad to talk to you because I'm, I'm a startup founder myself. This is, you know, just something that we do for fun. Uh, I lead a small technology company here in Portland that we, uh, you know, we try to democratize the, um, um, the service, the financial services for the immigrant community here in the U.S., and we're going exactly through you know what you're talking about. It's a very Anglo uh, uh, Portland. It's a very um, pretty wide market, mm-hmm. uh, and to pitch, I mean, we you know managed to to raise some funds, uh, but to pitch in, in, a, in a market where nobody has the understanding of the basics of the life of our Latino population is extremely, extremely, extremely hard. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So um, throughout my 23 years in tech, I've taught myself to code. I've built an agency with clients like Coca-Cola and Nexus. I've worked at startup companies that I've grown to exit. And, um, you know, I've built technology that I raised venture capital for. I've built the New York Fashion Tech Lab in 2014. And now... I'm raising a venture fund. Actually, I'm still deciding whether it's going to be a fund or a holding company, um, but to invest in the future of the new apparel supply chain. And I think it's fascinating how few people there are of color and women in venture because we are, first of all, women control 80 to 90% of all uh, consumer purchases in the yep. world. <laughs> yeah, I can attest that by uh, my ha- in my house. Yeah, <laughs> and and yet we don't control um, the industries that we consume. And so when I first started talking to other VCs about wanting to build my fund, I got such interesting feedback. Like, oh, well, you don't have a track record. Why why would anyone you know invest in you? And you, you don't know how hard this is going to be. It's really difficult. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you don't know what difficult is, Mr. Stanford, that <laughs> raised your first fund by going to your friends who had trust funds. You know? <laughs> exactly. It's, um, it, I found that there's an entirely different standard because most venture capitalists, they don't have a track record like I do. They haven't built things. They're actually, you know, MBA students that become analysts and can crunch numbers and data and do some research. But I tell you what, the real world, it doesn't care about your spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So um, I'm building this new fund and primarily because, again, I saw that there's this one point uh, or $2.4 trillion global apparel industry that's rapidly changing 
And nobody seems to care about it on the investment side. And as a matter of fact, raising venture capital and having built the New York Fashion Tech Lab and working with all these enterprise-level fashion companies and startups around the globe, they're struggling to figure out where to put their capital and what to value to these enterprise clients. Um, the amazing innovators are building really useful things, but they're not getting the funding to scale. So I was sitting there for a year saying, somebody needs to fix this. Nobody's grabbing the reins. I was like, well, I'll do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, not only does it give me an opportunity to represent Latinas as major, uh, a major powerful economic driver, but we are the largest consumers of fashion globally, and yet we control none of its capital and infrastructure. And it's funny, well, not funny that you mentioned it. We just were hearing a couple of stories um, here during Portland Startup Week this week, uh, where you know the, the the latest numbers in Silicon Valley for investments, like uh, black and uh, you know black entrepreneurs are getting less than uh, no a one point something percent of the investments, but Latinos mm -hmm. are not even accounted because it's so negligible. It's not like in the point. Oh, four percent, like something like basically yep. non-existent. So like, hang on a second. We are all entrepreneurs by nature. I mean, we come here from different lands and that's, you know, the, the, the word in Spanish is emprender, which it's mm -hmm. just like emprender a, a viaje and to, 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 to launch yourself into a journey. That yeah. by definition, every, every, everybody here is an entrepreneur and, and you see it's under blood, it's in DNA, but why don't we get the funding? Uh, why don't we get their, uh, you know, well, that, that piece you of, so scale? So what I've learned is that everything comes down to access and access comes down to social validation. Mm -hmm. And if you combine those two things, obviously access and social validation tend to skew towards the white man. <laughs> and the good old boys network, they say, oh, it's about pattern matching and you need to have a warm intro to talk to a VC. And that's part of the vetting process. If you can't get a warm intro, then you're probably not deserving of the venture capital because you're not scrappy enough. It's your fault. And I say, bull. <laughs> you know, I'm friends with Arlen Hamilton, the founder of Backstage Capital, and she is creating Oh, she is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I met Arlen a couple of times in San Francisco in uh, the um, Tech Inclusion Conferences, and I, I met her. I think the first time I met her here was a couple of years ago. She is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, we're not under underrepresented. We're underestimated. Yes. And when people say that it's a pipeline problem, I'm sorry, but the reality is it's not a pipeline problem. There's plenty of black and brown people and women. And the matter of fact is, is that change is painful. And the people that need to change are not the black and brown people or women. It's the white men. And so it's not going to change until they address this painful process of realizing it's them. <laughs> and their their systems and misogyny and programmer culture and... Um, you know, unconscious bias, gaslighting, all of it. It all just adds up to a toxic equation. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see that really implode with the Travis Kalnicks of uh, Silicon Valley and the ridiculous investments, you know, $62 million flushed down the toilet and, yep. and these white bros saying, oh, well, let's 
can't wait to see what we build next. And of course, they're going to get funded for the next thing at an even higher valuation because they're more valuable because they're failure. But a brown person? Hell no. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. It, it is. It is. Fun. You know, a, a couple uh, last year when we started to do our our, our first uh, Series C investment round, and I remember getting feedback, and it was like, you know, off the books. It's like, you know what? Uh, you know, the, the the people here, like, uh, they see you. Uh, yeah, you're a brown man, but you know, you're not a small guy, so you know, fairly tall. Uh, but they don't know, and I don't like to talk about myself, but like, they don't know who you are. And yeah, you speak yeah. English, and you can. Toss the words, but like, but they don't know that I hold uh, an advanced degree, uh, an MBA from one of the top European MBA schools in, yeah. e in economics. And I was like, well, you should put that up there. I'm like, well, just like I, I know it's about the team. You know, one of my co-founders uh, is from Harvard, but all, he also doesn't like to talk about it. So, yeah. like, oh God, oh, well, you should put that up, up there because you know that puts you. you know, okay, the, then they know you're smart. Like, well, do do I have to put a piece of paper? for you to understand that I'm smart? You know, unfortunately we do. And that, that aligns with the um, social validation portion of this. And I've frankly, one of my biggest mentors and advisors in building my new fund happens to be a black man from Ghana who uh, came to the States and worked with a family office and built a, a venture fund here. He's been probably the most supportive, I call him my, my VC spirit guide. <laughs> <laughs> and um, frankly, because he gets it. He's like, no, you're the smartest person that I've ever met that can talk about e-commerce and this global supply chain for apparel. And, and he's like, you need to brag more. And I was like, oh, that's been beaten out of me. <laughs> you know, yeah. who do you think are. You think you're hot shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, screw it. Yes, I am badass, and you all can recognize. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, lay down the law. Hey, Lisa, let, let, let me let me make a shout out to one of our, our sponsors really quick, the CPA Dudes, mm -hmm. where accounting is never boring. I hope everybody filed their taxes. You get two weeks. That's it. April 15th, remember. Their, their prize is not based on time, and customers decide, decide the value to them. They don't charge you for sending invoice, phone calls, email, text, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. They get shit done. Find them <laughs> at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Uh, so, so yeah, Lisa, I mean, it's super interesting. I'm, I'm also, you know, my, um, I started my career fresh out of college in international trade and supply chain. So I, I want to hear about more about the challenges and, and apparel because that's an industry that I, I work with um, with brands like Gab, Banana Republic, um, I feel a sports world that led me to Italy and, uh, and, and China. So I was all, I've always been passionate about that. I'm also a member of the Export Council of Oregon. Uh, that, that's oh, an appointment yeah. by the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Uh, yeah. So, I'm, you know, all my back, aside from also, you know, all my uh, being the uh, the founder of a, a startup, I've been, I've been doing this for well since my my you know fresh out of college. So it's it's also passion me international economics, how the wheels turn, and how I mean I want to hear from your experience because now I've been removed from the uh, apparel industry for an, almost a decade. And I want to mm -hmm. see what's uh, uh, what. What are the the, um, the problems right now, and, and challenges, yeah. and op but opportunities as well? Yeah, for sure. So um, my whole journey, um, I tend to just follow uh, where the universe is pointing me, and my my number one goal in life is to 
um, do something creative that makes money and adds value. Um, so that could be, I started in design, that could be, um, you know, entrepreneurship or <laughs> venture capital. So it's a pretty loose thing. Um, but my, my foray into the supply chain side of it started after I built the New York Fashion Tech Lab in 2014 because I was really uh, given access to behind-the-scenes sort of intel from C-level executives at all the major brands and retailers saying stuff they would never say in public. And I realized they all are screwed. (laughs) And um, having an accelerator is kind of putting lipstick on the pig of the apparel industry. So what really needs to change is massive transformation on the foundations, the very foundations of this industry that haven't changed in hundreds of years, which is its supply chain. And because of that, I went down to... Puerto Rico, being Puerto Rican, and being on the board of Parallel 18, the first Puerto Rican startup accelerator, um, I said, well, this could be a great opportunity for me to help my island's economy and help revive the apparel uh, manufacturing infrastructure there. So I went down for about a better part of a year, a week every month, to Puerto Rico, meeting with factories, maker labs, universities, cut and sew shops ateliers, designers, et cetera. And the island has historically been known for its apparel manufacturing and it used to be a huge part of its economy. But of course, everything went to China mm-hmm. and India. So now there's this massive opportunity due to not only digitization of the apparel supply chain, literally replacing humans with robots, okay. which has never been possible because textiles are extremely difficult for a robot to to maneuver because they have such different, um, uh, what you call it, tactile um, issues. You know, silk is slippery, um, your spandex yeah. is stretchy. Um, so how does a robot learn how to Feel. interact with all these yeah. variables? Um, so now there's all kinds of robotics and and treatments for textiles that will make them rigid temporarily. So a robot can handle it, put it through the machine and, and dip it at the end and it's rinsed and it's back to its original state. So these innovations were driving this massive change that I saw coming. um, And I'm hoping still to bring it to Puerto Rico because made in the USA is becoming a big driving force. God knows what the trade war is going on now. Um, but there's a massive opportunity because of the relationship between New York City and Puerto Rico. There's so many Puerto Ricans in New York, especially after Maria now. We've had over 250,000 migrate stateside, and New York is one of the densest areas of Puerto Ricans. Yeah. Um, the fashion industry is right there, and instead of flying to China or even Canada, you can hop on a couple-hour flight down to tropical Puerto Rico to visit your factory. Who wouldn't love that? <laughs> exactly, and have a Cuba Libre with them, you know, the Bacardi. Yeah. Well, now we're plugging in another product. Have a Cuba Libre, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> no names until yeah. they're so, so I'm, I'm, I started uh, with that research, realized that there's a whole lot of other infrastructure that the island needs, especially now after Maria, um, but I think it is still possible. And I'm glad I went through that process because it taught me all the details of, of what is 
uh, the current state of affairs in apparel manufacturing and where it could it is going. Um, and this clawback to localization is what I'm most interested in, and I think it is the future of everything, where you're going to have your lab-grown textiles, your on-demand design by the consumer products yep. um, with virtual, you know, uh, real-time actualization of what it will look like, and then uh, on-demand digital manufacturing and mass customization. So all of that is what I'm looking to invest in and deploy made in the USA. Amazing. And, and, and certainly, you know, because um, recently I heard a story that H&M has something like $4 billion, with a B, $4 billion in inventory of unsold inventory throughout the world. $4 billion. Yeah. And they're, they're burning, literally burning uh, uh, clothes in Sweden just you yeah. know, because they don't have, they don't know what else to do with it. Uh, like it's it's amazing you know, the, the amount of waste that all these uh, industries generate. Uh, because it's it, like you and I know it's really impossible to um, really track uh, forecast demand and supply on a particular exactly. item. So it's just a so crap shot. Don't have to cast it if you can have the end consumer design it. What is a brand? Yeah. <laughs> you know. All of this is changing so much, and none of the big incumbents are really prepared for that shift. So the digital natives, brands like Bonobos, ModCloth, Nasty Gal, um, you know, that were born or Everlane, born in the digital era, have a massive opportunity and advantage yeah. over all of the incumbents. Well, and, 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 and again, to further the story, I was listening to H&M, you know, they don't even have an e-commerce venue. So we're like, wow, really, this gigantic company... <laughs> doesn't have a web optimized um, just web page like what are they doing where do they think they are yeah yeah brick and mortar forever and they're like oh shit look at Amazon like everybody's just like doing their like completely unprepared uh, to me it's amazing that a, cor a corporation that size including Sarah and uh, Inditech in, in Spain they're not pre I mean they were the disruptors of of that of the fashion model in the early 2000s, late 1900s, 1990s. But there's a backlash now. Yeah. That literally, the people that made them huge are the people that are going to take them down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these millennials are really woke. And as we've seen with Parkland, they're really freaking powerful. Yes. So you better beware and be attuning your business model to the actual needs and demands of your consumer. Or you will be no more. Or you'll be gone. Yes. Yep. I mean, they'll go the, the way of Toys R Us, uh, Blockbuster, <laughs> yeah. name, name them all. I mean, the, the companies that didn't adapt, Toys R Us didn't see or couldn't see Amazon. Where are they now? Liquidation. Blockbuster, yeah. gone. And even Amazon. I mean, I think there's something to be said for um, capitalism run amok that is killing not only people, but our planet and our yep. safety and everything. It's, it's capitalism at all costs has become so toxic. And I think more and more people are aware of that. It, it's, it's a primary um, wedge that, that creates the haves and have nots. And so unfortunately the have nots are usually brown people. So this is an opportunity to, for me being part of, this shift in the global economy that impacts brown people, because we're usually the workers, yep. um, that I could be steering this conversation someplace rather than letting the white man steer it. 
Yeah. And, and just, you know, just be more equitable. I mean, because there's certainly a gigantic pie and, mm-hmm. you know, we can just have a bigger portion. I mean, why do you need two yachts or three, a 180 foot yacht? And there's no need for that in the world. I, I agree with you. I mean, we could yeah. all live more comfortable, but at, at a certain point, how many houses are, you know, needed mm-hmm. when, when there's people literally starving and working for for nothing? For peanuts, so it's like that. That 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 at some point we gotta be more conscientious. And say yes, I want a bigger, a better standard for or, of living. I may want to have some luxuries, like you know, uh, a luxury meal every once in a while, but not a yacht, not a Ferrari. I mean, you know, the, the, the you know, I, I hope that we reach the point when people realize, you know, that's this is not what's gonna keep us alive in this planet, and at some point we're gonna break it and we're mm. gonna fuck it up, really, really, and, and I think it's coming pretty soon. So. So yeah, d- yeah. You know, the the global garbage patch that's floating around our yeah. ocean that's now bigger than Texas is um, just terrifying. I'm I'm I don't know, but about you or your listeners, but I get horrified now every time I see our recycling pile at the end of the week, and just look at all this consumption that yep. we're just throwing into recycling but even recycling is not creating solutions it's just adding to more stuff so i'd like to invest in opportunities that repurpose existing waste uh rather than you know creating new waste that is more sustainable or better for the planet i think that's the future of everything how do we repurpose yeah, you know, not you that work on supply chain. It's it's been on my mind. Like every time I see something and uh, you know coming on Amazon, and like I recently ordered a part for my blender. It's literally the size of a um, half dollar, and it came yeah. in a giant envelope. Like what the fuck? I mean, it's just like seriously. Or I, you know, I'll get a case and it comes in a giant box. Like the case mm-hmm. is rubber. And it's like you open it, it's like it's like a shoe box. Like where's that waste go? I mean, it goes and like you said into the recycling, but. All of that costs transportation. All of that costs material. You know how much does it cost, and, and you know what's the carbon footprint of all all that process? Things that you know, in, you know, a lot of people don't don't think about, and they're yeah. like, oh well, just Amazon is great. Yeah, it, it is. It was fantastic, but all I see is waste. And as an economist, I was like, I hate waste. I, I hate all to serve our uh, comfort as this Western privileged society and is our comfort, our temporary comfort and inconvenience really worth the planet and our children's future? No, absolutely. I would say no. And and I do see, you know, come, I come from Mexico, um, uh-huh. you know, where we were taught at an early age, you don't throw anything, the gar- you know, outside of the garbage, you don't waste water because water is, you know, it's disappearing at a rapid, <laughs> furious rate. So every time yeah. I see someone, you know, and this is a shout out for my oldest daughter, you know, her 20 minute showers, you have no <laughs> idea how much I just like makes me want to blow a gasket. It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> do you have any idea like how much water is going into that? But, you know, I, again, oh, it's comfort. It's there, you know, you know, it's, it just comes out of the, the, the spigot and, and it's fantastic. But they don't think about the repercussions, even in a state like Oregon where it rains all the time. Yeah, speaking of comfort, I, I've been working with some of my friends in Puerto Rico since Maria to help with the recovery. And one of my friends, Christine Ined Nieves Rodriguez, 
have been working in Humacao uh, since day one on the recovery, and that's the part of the island that was hit hardest because it was where the hurricane first hit landfall. And she was there uh, with her grandmother. They still, to this day, have no electricity. Um, they still have spotty water. Some days they'll be able to shower. Some days there's no water to even flush the toilet. Wow. Um, this is still six months after. <laughs> yep. And gearing up to go into the next hurricane season. So um, I think the biggest opportunities for innovation, I, I'm so sick of what Silicon Valley has been focusing on, serving the 1% of our world. I want to invest in things that will change the planet for everyone. And I think a big opportunity is in these um, disaster recovery and disaster prevention, prevention and disaster yeah. readiness planning where you have, you know, um, use hydroponics to grow all of your food underground. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why does Puerto Rico have to import all of its produce? It's got an island to grow exactly. things from. They've yeah. got plenty of land. They Plenty just, of land, um, perfect weather. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming there's good soil. There's got to be a lot of volcanic too. Soil. Oh, yeah. So it's fertile soil. So it's got all the elements, but we just, uh, and as you were saying, you know, six months on, it's unbelievable that a state, well, uh, a part of the U.S. doesn't have water, doesn't have electricity, and the government pretty much just abandoned it. Just like yeah. you know what, out of, uh, it's a different yeah. headline. We got a different distraction now. A trade war with China and who knows what next. Foreign like, brown, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Yeah, exactly. If the, the border. yeah, uh, now troops on the border for imaginary, you know, rapists and whatnot. <laughs> uh, gee, I don't even. Uh, let's not get right, started. Yeah. Yeah. Alan, can you give me a whiskey? <laughs> I need a shot of whiskey right now, man. <laughs> To calm myself down. So is tequila with me, quite honestly. There you so. go. Tequila rum, actually. Puerto Rican rum. There you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, no, I agree with you, I mean, Lisa. And that, that's, you know, one of the things that we've also focused here in is social entrepreneurship. You know, what do you do to change? I mean, you got to make money, yes, because without money, you, you, you can't do anything. But how is your startup, how is your organization changing the world for, for better? Mm-hmm. If I if I see another Juicero come out of Silicon Valley, <laughs> I'm gonna. Uh, uh, and, no, and, I know, and, and you know, you, you see these stories like the, the guys that want to do the virtual bodega. It's like get out of here. Yeah. And, so, and they get or funded. Even and cryptocurrency. I'm sorry, cryptocurrency. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, has jumped the shark already. You know. <laughs> Well, and it, yeah, especially with that, you know, you, you, you had those conversations in December. People were asking me, hey, what do you think? about?" Like, it's Banana Republic. Don't even think, don't even look at it because it's just, <laughs> but but look at Bitcoin. It's at almost 20,000. Like, don't. It's going to Yeah, deflate. and it's I mean, that's fine, but I would, I would put that more under the category of day trading or gambling. Absolutely. It's gambling. Than, yeah. And then solid investment strategy. Now, there are, because we are actually trying to incorporate some aspects of blockchain into our technology but that's for uh, you know what, what we're trying to make is uh, blockchain the foundation technology has many other use cases exactly yeah that are extremely valid and, and, but and, and for our little startup is you try to change the game on this and the remittance the money that flows from the u.s migrant workers or migrants back home whatever you are so what we're trying to do is you know try to get a place where you don't have to deal with exchange, uh, currency exchanges, 
where it has to be immediate and you can pay with your phone. So to take away yeah. all the insecurities of having to deal with cash, intermediaries, you know, you know, moving money across financial institutions and deliver peer-to-peer uh, value so they can make your relatives can make purchases or you can, you know, pay their bills directly from the U.S. to back home. So, uh, yeah, one of the use cases of blockchain in the supply chain that I love and can't wait until it's fully adopted is uh, transparency, mm-hmm. where you will literally, there's a company called Provenance that's already deployed this. Um, I believe it's provenance.org, where they have a blockchain app and you can see who's been, who made your cotton. And is it certified organic fair trade cotton? Um, and then who turned that cotton into um, fiber and, uh, uh-huh. you know, textile yeah. thread? And then who actually, what textile mill turned it into actual fabrics? And then who designed the with the textiles to turn it into a garment? And who sold it all throughout your supply chain? You'll have full transparency and literally down to who is the person or robot and person-robot combo that sewed your garment oh, and where nice. and, and how much are they paying? Yeah, exactly. And we're, yeah, oh my gosh, that will be phenomenal. And you as a consumer, uh, you know, have a clear conscience of where your product came from and who you're supporting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and like I said, you said, you know, that has applications in groceries. I would like to go buy an apple and, and, and have certified that it's organic because we've heard all those stories about, oh, bananas coming from Costa Rica that they said they were organic. I mean, they're full of pesticides. You can do that in Japan. Yeah. They have QR and codes. coming from China that's injected with silicone to yes. look plumper. Or, or, the, oh, or, or I don't know if you guys heard, but in Mexico, they were importing Chinese rice that was basically plastic. Oh, mm-hmm. Yes, plastic. It's like, holy cow. Like, what are we eating? Like at that point, at some point, you gotta have that level of transparency to say, "This is what I'm ingesting and uh, what I'm consuming," and but also, who am I supporting? Because am I supporting a terrorist organization or you know, um, uh, white nationalist organization, terrorist? Period. Or yeah. or, or drug, de- drug? I don't want to. I don't want my dollar to fund anything that we don't know. As consumers, maybe the avocados that you're eating, they're controlled by by a cartel. A cartel. Which happens in Mexico, and you and we don't know. Here we are, woo, avocado toss. Uh, avocado. Yes, house avocados for three dollars, and, and guess who's making the money? Yeah. yeah. To buy. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how transparency can live alongside capitalism because they kind of don't <laughs> innately work together. You know? No, not at all. I mean, I think with me, capitalism is based on information asymmetry. You know, where it's those are the foundation foundations of the stock market, which is capitalism. Mm-hmm. Who ha, who holds the information and who gets to make the money, exactly. and who doesn't? You don't have the information. Information is power. When you have the information, you have the power, and you make the money. If you don't, then then, then here we are. You know, we're the peons. Yeah, there's there's some interesting. Um, I, I did an interview with Verizon a year or two ago, talking about the future of data and privacy. And I think there's going to be more and more um, needs for these privacy bots and all different kinds of bots that will serve to um, create more transparency for us around not only how our information is being used and extracted from us and where and how uh, we have control over creating a, a white noise area saying, nope, sorry, my information at this moment in time is not available to you. 
or yes, I'll check in at, you know, Starbucks because it'll give me, you know, some value in Starbucks points or whatever. But more and more privacy and transparency of data is going to become a huge um, market opportunity for innovators to help create some structure and and guardrails around. As we can see with Facebook, things have gone off the rails and there's no grown-ups steering the ship. Yeah, well, and, it's, and, and to, be, to be fair, it's not only Facebook because Facebook has only control of certain portion, but just imagine Google. If you yeah. have an Android phone, they know everything about you. Yeah, yeah. They know where you are, where you've been, and it's... Uh, uh, Amazon is doing the same if you have an, an Alexa. Yeah. I have an app where I could control all the data that everyone else is collecting about me. I'd pay for that, would you? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I was just talking about Amazon and we laughed because we have an Alexa here. And apparently she, Alexa didn't like what we were saying about Amazon and because it just bleep, <laughs> like, whoa, okay. Talk about <laughs> privacy and, and, you know, here, AI just got really mad at us. So yeah. at some point we're going to pay for it. Yeah, AI in the future is, um, I think a lot of people are terrified, but I think if it's, um, if it's handled properly, like with digitization of the apparel supply chain, we have an opportunity to empower the people that used to be marginalized and taken advantage of. So I, I consider all of these blue-collar jobs or quote-unquote blue-collar jobs of the future um, to be similar to like uh, lab technicians. You go and get your blood drawn. Those people have to go through some rigorous training. They make yep. really good money. It's a stable career. Um, and you can, you know, stay there your whole life, have a career in it. I think those are the types of jobs that AI are, are going to be able to enable for the people that used to be sewing these garments. You know, literally, these people are just sitting there stitching the same line, the same scene on one part of a shirt all day long. Over and over. So yeah, yeah. Is it really value add? How about we get them a little bit of training and they can make six figures manning the machines that stitch that one line all day long? Yeah, the riveters of the 21st century, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of putting, um, you know, screws and, and nails, they're just going to be programming, making sure that the machines are working effectively and doing what they're supposed to do. Yep. And not conspiring Quality against control, us. Um, you know, packing things out, making sure that um, the the minimums are hit, and especially with mass customization, there's going to need to be a lot more human oversight of any customized products. Absolutely. At least let me do one more shout out to another of our sponsor, Park Bond Domains, or sure. websites and internet commerce for the rest of us. Talking about technology. Porkbun, where you can get a website domain names for your business or personal brand with the lowest prices. Yeah, everybody has heard of .com, .net, .org, but do you know you can get a domain name that matches what your startup does? If you're a design entrepreneur, you can get a .design or .law domain name. Use your imag imagination and contact them at porkbun.com slash startup radio. Uh, so, yeah, Lisa, I mean, we got uh, about 10 minutes, uh, actually less than 10 minutes. I just want to touch a little bit more about your inspirations and you know we're talking about um the refashion you know you're a founder investor what else are you doing besides you know the and the startup world how are you getting ah. your yeah so um my spirit guide into venture capital brian 
away um, has co-founded with me the New York Supply Chain Meetup, which started, uh, our first event was last November in New York City, and we thought maybe 20 other supply chain nerds would show up, and we had 150 people standing room only for our first event. Okay, (laughs) amazing. Um, and our second event, we had a little over 300 at SAP. So we, we've hit a nerve. I guess either supply chain nerds had no other outlet before us. Or, <laughs> they were or repressed. Or this is for them. <laughs> so um, we are officially the New York Supply Chain Meetup. Um, if you want to check us out online, we're www.tnyscm.com. Okay. The New York Supply Chain up.com and uh, we host these monthly events and this coming month or actually in April it's going to be focused on blockchain taking the blockchain out of the lab and into the real world in different applications that are not cryptocurrency <laughs> and uh, May we're focusing on the convergence of the new apparel supply chain and that will be at SAP um, we've got some amazing uh, speakers case equity partners is um, has patented this concept that they call the uh, shopping fulfillment center basically it's taking existing malls and reconfiguring their real estate so you have warehousing manufacturing fulfillment lab-grown textiles mass customization all within the same footprint and a much smaller footprint fractal physical storefront Mm -hmm. um, because you can have samples of merch out on the floor and have robots or runners bring things back and forth from back of house to front of house for purchase. Interesting. Um, And creating these experiential, almost Walt Disney-like shopping destinations. So um, he's going to be talking about that. We've got Trendalytics talking about leveraging their trend mapping and prediction data to create micro-capsule collections with coals based on specific geography. Again, less is more. (laughs) You know, if you can really get smarter about what you're producing and who wants it and where, you don't have to overproduce and ship it all over the world and then mark it off to 90% off and then burn what doesn't sell. Uh, We also have uh, Bolt Threads. They're lab-grown textiles. They create spider silk. Um, and are creating their own garments out of it. They've, uh, they're also doing um, some projects with some big world-known designers, leveraging their new textiles. Um, just all kinds of interesting new innovations that talk about this convergence. And our first event, our first annual event, um, will be this October. And it's tentatively called Chain Reaction 2018. And that'll be a two-day or a one-day conference in October, um, we're looking at October 11th or 12th, and partner with Freightways. Okay, amazing! Sounds amazing, and and you know all of this is surrounding um, innovation. And take, do, do you have any other um, success stories that have come out of, of these events, or is this just relatively new? Yeah, yeah, it's relatively new. But out of our very first event, we had um, a few of our speakers say that they landed. Uh, Funding and oh, okay. uh, clients right there at the at the event. So um, we've become this hub uh, and just launched our new website that I shared with you this past week, and already have people um, contacting us to partner with us, including different investors that want to focus on supply chain or learn more about supply chain. So we'll we're, our goal is to become the hub for this global community 
uh, around supply chain. And if you're looking for investments, you have a great company, um, you're a big enterprise organization looking for the latest innovations, we're the place to go. Excellent. So and we're going to put the, can, can, can you repeat that again, the, the website? So, and we're also going to yeah. put it on our, on our social media handles. It's www.t, as in Tom, N-Y, S, as in Sam, C, as in Cat, M.com. T-N-Y-S-C-M.com. com. Okay. Excellent. So, so people can see, you know, uh, how, how to register. And if you're in the New York State area, uh, just attend one of the events online. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. All right, Lisa. So we're, we got less than five minutes right now. Is there anyone, anything else that we should learn about you? What's, what's coming up next for you, personal or professional? Well, um, oh, I, I have to give a shout out to Dr. Patty Fletcher. Um, I was recently featured in her book, Disruptors, which is now a bestseller on Amazon. Oh, wow. um, the title is Disruptors, Su Success Stories from Women Who Break the Mold. And I was honored to be included in this book with other groundbreaking women. Um, she tells basically my life story in it. So if you want to know all the dirt, um, go and buy the book. <laughs> okay. And uh, it, it really is talking about how you don't have to wait for permission to find um, – nobody's going to give you what you want out of life. You need to figure out your own path to make it happen. And so looking back on my life, you know, that proving my worth really was the driving force for all of that. And I started out as a little girl that wanted to do something creative and was in love with the fashion industry, even though I knew it technically kind of hated me because I was all wrong. Um, fell in love with the supermodels of the 80s that were, you know, Claudia Schiffer and Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington, all these tall, thin, blonde or white women um, that were superhuman. Um, but I've basically formed my entire career to circle back and be part of the change that I want to see in the industry I first fell in love with. And, and it's just done from one person. Yeah, that's amazing. That, that's how change starts. You know, it doesn't start yeah. with the big ideas. It just starts with one and then, you know, snowballs from there. So hopefully we can help you, Lisa. I mean, anything that we can do also to just spread the word, um, you know, through social media, we will gladly do it. And we're going to start, you know, talking about, uh, because again, it's also a subject that I'm passionate about, supply chain, international supply chain, not only in the fashion industry, but overall. And how, mm -hmm. uh, because for me, it's like how, people have to have an understanding how supply chain works in international trade. So you don't listen to, you know, the idiots that are talking and, you know, over there in Washington, D.C. and say, hey, we're going to do this and that. Like when, when it's absolutely baloney, you know, it's complete bullshit. So we got to tell the truth. This is how the world operates in real terms. This is what trade really means. And it's not imports and exports and, you know, imports are good, exports are bad. So that's part of also of my of, of, my personal mission to eventually just start, uh, you know, taking the blind from other people so they can make better decisions in, in, when it comes to voting time. For sure. I think a huge part of the future of the apparel supply chain is what I've seen uh, starting to form that I call the artisanal supply chain. And this is taking indigenous peoples and their dying uh, skill sets and creating a, a supply chain out of these these makers and paying them fairly and sustainably and giving a whole new um, 
I think they're going to become the couture uh, skills of the future because there's so few craftspeople left in the world that can do handmade textiles like in Guatemala I know. or Peru or leather work like in Mexico. You know, yeah. all of those skills are, are the artisanal supply chain of the future. And hopefully they mo they'll monetize, not someone else, the, you know, for the yeah. fruit of, of their labor. That that'll be, that'll be amazing. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. We appreciate you, you know, having you on the, on the show. Uh, thank you so much and keep on, keep on the good fight. You're a true, true inspiration for all of us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been fun. This is Edgar Navas from Latino Founder Hour on StartupRadioNetwork.com. Coming up next is our friend, uh, the out entrepreneur with host, Rhodes Perry. Rhodes talks about the LGBTQ entrepreneurs from all over the world, and he's a phenomenal guy. So Rhodes coming up. Stay tuned. And thank you, Startup Radio Network. Happy Friday to all. You've been listening to the Latino Founder Hour podcast with your hosts, Edgar Navas, founder of Clica, and Claudia Cardenas. El programa Latino Founder Hour es grabado en las instalaciones de NetSpace en el estudio Bigfoot Podcast en la hermosa ciudad de Portland. Our audio engineer, mixer, and podcast editor is Alain Beausoleil. Diseñador de logo, Carolyn Main. Our network logo was designed by Jessica Chan. Diseñador de sitio web, Cameron Grimes. Our production assistant is Chelsea Lancaster. Tema de música, Funning and Sunning, de Kevin MacLeod. Cree en ti mismo, sueña en grande y confía en el universo, de Marta Leticia y Silvia Romero. <laughs>